Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. This is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob? I'm really happy. Why are you really happy, Rob? Because we have a really exciting guest today. We do. We do have an exciting guest. We've not had a performance artist in the booth with us yet. And She's this... not solely a performance artist, though. But she does a lot of performance She does do arts. a lot of performance. I feel like the performance work that this artist has... Uh, created in the past few years is mm. probably the work that maybe got her the most visibility in a way. That's exciting. Um, but actually, I first met her at the Royal College of Art. Um, I was doing a crit for the final year students before they did, or maybe it was just after they What did is a crit? Time. What do you mean the crit? Well, you go into the university and you kind of chat to, they invite like <clears throat> external people, you know, gallerists, different people, to go to the university and chat to the artists about what their work is and what their final exhibition looks like and you sort of go through the whole of their studying and process, everything done. right. Yeah. So I met the, uh, this artist there. And, but hang um, on, so let's just go back to that. But you go back and give them feedback. So you go in and go, right, hi guys, I'm a professional from the outside world the world you're going into, what is it you're creating? And then you give them kind of tips and hints? Or? Yeah, but they've already installed their exhibition. So ah. you, like, like they, ha- they all have solo rooms yeah. of their work as yeah. their final project. Yeah. And I go in and look at that work with them yeah. and actually talk to them about it, find out who they are, what they are, why they are. And then I give my, my feedback and say, I think this. And but what do you think if their work's not good? Well, I, I was point, honest. Yeah. I was actually totally honest, which, which the artists we're about to meet can confirm. <laughs> because one, <laughs> right. one, one artist actually walked out. And on I your career yeah 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 because he was upset and I didn't mean to be disrespectful <laughs> or anything no but I wasn't horrible but I just I, 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 I was just work. honest no I just didn't think it was very good oh. and to be honest I still don't think it was very good Oh, but anyway lovely man um, <laughs> so, but any, but it, no he wasn't shit I'm not saying that oh. that was not I was giving constructive challenging. criticism challenging yeah exactly challenging and provoking and trying to you know improve the situation anyway the artist that we're meeting today yes i immediately responded to the work and at the time it was a painting course so i kind of saw her work in the um you know through through the filter of painting i guess Mm. but since then um her work has evolved into textile pieces i would say it's a technicolor universe Mm -hmm. and um it references hip-hop culture and um also, she grew up in Canada, but her family um, were originally from uh, South Korea. So you have this kind of um, element of Korean history in her work as well. And um, we will discuss all of that very soon. Yes. But our guest today is, is Zadie, Zadie Cha. Hi, Zadie. Hello, 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 hello. Welcome. Thank you. What do you think of that intro? I think it's really good. I mean, 
you failed to talk about how we kind of had a com- conversation, a relationship after oh, yeah. the fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, linking back to that crit, I thought Rob was excellent. Yeah. I think Thanks. that you're actually quite nice. I know, I did I thought too. you were quite generous. I think. Did you know he was coming round? Was you prepared for someone just to... Yes, I think, I think what happens during those crits are that students get really excited because it's kind of professional feedback. Got it. Professional feedback, which yeah. I actually don't think is always really helpful. And the reason for that is because maybe similarly to the way actors are in theater school, people really psych themselves out. Yeah. Oh, if an agent is going to come or yeah. something like that. So you have yeah. all these like top tier gallerists or maybe kind of writers or thinkers coming in. And while that is really exciting, I think people often, without realizing it, perform for those folks that come in. So, mm-hmm. OK, we have Robert Diamond, who's a gallerist. I'm going to try to present work or curate myself in a way where hopefully this person might think I'm a talent and maybe give me a show which is kind of i think the way things might have happened before right possibly but maybe not so much now or i mean it does sometimes for some people but i think it's really important that people that are getting those um crits are open and open to being vulnerable and messy so that they can actually get help that they need but i thought you were great i thought that one particular person you were um critical uh of because of the work i don't mm. even think that actually it was really harsh criticism no i, I, think, I think you were being very light no but to be fair <laughs> to what did him, you think of his work i think that this particular work mm, the thing is that <laughs> no, no no wait good pause the thing is that it, it's it's mixed crits so basically you have a, a bunch of students that you might not have known for the full two years or a year that you'd been studying with and this person was from a different program than me so oh, it's hard right. so it's hard to judge because it's like it's almost a cold read for for the other students as well because you can't at that time let's face it the art's not very good right for everybody across uh-huh. the board and so you know there's what's going to happen there's signs or signals that the work is kind of giving off that someone is interpreting that might not be what the artist was thinking that the work was doing but it's actually doing that right. and that's probably why the reaction was kind of well what's going on here i'm not really sure about this which is kind of what you had said and actually you were really i thought gentle about it do you go around with yes the, oh yeah. you see their reaction yeah, the whole group comes with you and do you conversation or you just listen to what they're saying mm, so it's a little bit how is it okay so i come from canada and when in canada at vancouver in vancouver at emily carr the students are there to defend their work so you need to kind of go into like a debate or it's a bit combative and i think it's like that in other schools the rca we're taught that i mean it might have changed now but in the painting program when i was there the artist is not allowed to talk they have to only listen to comments or questions or whatever criticisms and they're not allowed to speak even at the end sometimes they're not allowed to defend themselves and I think that this is not helpful and it's probably the reason why people end up feeling impotent and feeling mm. like they just want to storm out. Mm. Having said that, I think that probably just shows a little bit of lack of maybe maturity. Not on that student. That student's fine. Yeah, it's yeah. great. I also this... think it's an incredibly pressurised time yeah. because because it's your final show. You've been building up to this for maybe three years, yeah. more sometimes if you've done foundations, all that stuff. So it was, in, you know, and I was trying to be sensitive to that at the time. Yeah, the pressure's but, on. Yeah, the pressure's on. So you're not and, allowed to and then I think back. if you don't like hearing criticism then it's just not gonna work i guess i think i mean you know art students have like well artists in general have very big egos and art students have really 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 big egos right so we're you know everyone's i'm i'm going to this school i'm already like a really important person yeah 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 yeah. and then what happens like i said it's a very performative environment right Mm. so you have 
you know, like um, whether it's a tutor or another visiting artist, you have a gallerist or, a, you know, a curator or a writer coming in and you're on the spot. You have all your peers around you who maybe some people are kind of vying or gunning for you to fail. Cool. And then you have someone kind of being like, well, I don't think that this was that great or I'm not sure about this. It's and exposing, isn't it? It is. And I think at the end of the day, artists are really sensitive and artists work with ideas and like to think of themselves as kind of um, uh, academically um, adept or clever mm. or good with materials and if they're called out by someone who's in quotes kind of an expert or a professional mm. it's embarrassing isn't yeah it? but the thing is i did um no, you sort didn't. of start off by saying to everybody yes i'm a gallerist but i'm no more important than any of you in this room do you know what i mean because mm. i didn't want to come in like all high and mighty either because mm. that's not what you do do you know what i mean it's just yeah. an opinion and that's all it is and my taste is one thing you know your taste is another thing. Everyone has different you tastes. You kept your sunglasses on the whole time, didn't you? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you get, like, I wish. With yeah. Can you imagine with a, like, a mink coat on? Oh dear. Anyway, so that, that day when I saw Zadie's work, mm. um, I was really impressed by it. Um, amazing use of um, shape and, and, and form. And I actually remember referencing Anthea Hamilton to you, I think at the time, because I was really into her work at the time. And I remember seeing something in the work and I felt like it wasn't totally fully formed yet. And this was it, a paint. This is a painting. Like it was kind of, paintings yeah. and installation, I think. Yeah. And it was really exciting to me because I, I, I felt like Zadie was special at that point. Oh. But at the same time, when you go to those courses, I often just feel like you shouldn't really sign people up at that point or or anything like that, because it's just too early. And especially that year, I think a lot of it was quite, quite early you know, well, it's always horrible. Kind of thing. I think that's, yeah. that's the thing. It's um, I mean, <laughs> that sounds really bad. I mean, and it's okay that it's horrible because you're you're still developing, exactly. and even when you're showing a lot, there's work that's horrible. I yeah. I mentioned this because I I feel like since I have graduated in 2014, I think I didn't have Instagram at the time. I had like Facebook and stuff. I I was a little bit older than most of the students, but I noticed that there's a real um. Uh, there's a real attention economy right now where people are always posting their work and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think, I'm thinking specifically about kind of students when I visit and I, you know, that's the kind of economy that they're sharing their work around and it depends on who likes it and who's following you. I mean, these things affect everybody, but I think it's really detrimental to the development of younger artists or younger yeah. career artists, earlier career artists. I think there's a level of expectation of how you should... Um, develop a professional mm -hmm. career or practice that either means that you make it or you don't and there's a lot of value that's placed upon that and I think it's destructive. It must cause anxiety as well. Yeah, I think so and I think it um I think artists are already quite competitive against one another because of the way the Do you think so? Is, yes, because the way the industry is laid out especially with students. So you have to understand that in when you're a student you don't have connections generally. If you're an international student, you don't know anyone. So what happens is you rely a lot on these contests like Bloomberg New, Bloomberg New Contemporaries or I don't know there's like probably so many now at this point yeah and I mean I I applied to that I think three times got denied each time oh wow the first time I I had um I made like the first round and what happens is you get all your work packed and 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 collected and then they bring them over to the judges and the judges then decide who's in the new contemporaries thing and so if you're someone who's made the first round and they pick up all your work and in my case at the time we like big paintings and then you don't pass that first round at all. <laughs> Can I swear? Yeah. You know, all your fucking um, fellow students see like, oh, yeah, like she thought she was so great because like she she passed the first round. But then look, all her work's getting delivered back to the studio is really <laughs> wow. shitty. And that's harsh. Obviously, it's funny to think about now. Yeah. But I think it's like it's it's embarrassing. It's a competitive environment. And I think people, unfortunately, when I was there anyways, there's this kind of idea that 
if you were one of the star stellar students, you were going to make it. And then mm. if you weren't, you're just here, here, aren't you? You're just here paying the tuition. Then you can just like fuck off and go back to Canada or wherever you're from. Right. That, that's the vibe. Where did you that feel like you fit in? Hmm. I think like for me, and this is for my undergrad as well, I've always been, I would say, like the hardest worker. I'm not saying there's people that didn't work as hard as me, but no one worked harder. This Mm. this is the way it is. I don't Mm. care what anyone says. Mm -hmm. I I challenge them on that. Mm. But I I never, you know, I'm not someone that was ever really talented in anything. I'm kind of like pretty okay in a lot of things. Mm. Like I used to really be into snowboarding when I was a kid. I was pretty good. I wanted to be professional as 15, but like clearly was never going to be professional, like not good enough, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think with art, never was super talented, but I, I have really, really strong work ethic and drive. And so just really, really pushed myself. So at the RCA, I think that I had good relationships with my tutors, but I don't think I was ever looked at as someone who was special or was going to, in quotes, make it ever. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, um, I got an email one day from John Slice, who had taught me when I did my master's, and he also was... Um, this is Christie's? No. Yeah, when I was at Christie's, and Zadie um, was also taught by him at the RCA because <coughs> he taught the painting course there. Oh, right. And he emailed me and said, look, I've got someone who's really great, and I think you'll really click with her. Can she come work for you? So I looked at the CV, and I was like, I kind of remember that name. And I didn't totally put the two and two together. And then when I met her, I was like, oh, my God, it's you. You're the person I like the work of. So we started to work together at Carl Friedman Gallery. And I can't remember what your role was. Were you like gallery assistant or something? Yeah, I was like the lowest rung of the ladder. <laughs> and I, but and the I, most important, yeah. actually. No, so, gallery glamour. The people that keep it all together. I mean, yeah. It was yeah. such a good experience for me, honestly. Like, I loved I, working with you. It was yeah, so much fun. I, How long was you there? I think like almost two years. Right. I really liked it for, I mean, a whole host of reasons. And I always recommend um, uh, students to try to get gallery jobs because I think it's a really good insider kind of look at how the industry works. And if you're lucky enough and you work in a gallery where they're not dodgy, you actually see from the perspective of an artist of maybe how things should be run in a gallery, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that was really important for me because if I ever kind of encounter things that I think are fishy, it's because of my experience at the gallery. I can think this is not how things were run there. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, that's interesting. That's really, yes. so as an artist, you know yeah. how to be treated because yeah. you've seen a good yes. example before. Yeah. That's great. I never yeah. knew that. Oh Well, because I think maybe that's just the norm for you. I mean, obviously, you know how things might run in other places because you have colleagues and such. But for me, I mean, it made a really big difference because I think most artists, especially earlier career ones or ones that don't have experiences or have had bad experiences, we're very, very suspicious of gallerists. Mm. Right. And kind Mm. of industry people, because um, I think it's a really weird world to navigate, probably very similar to how it is for new up and coming actors. Right. Yes, of course. It's probably quite similar. Mm. But I loved working at the gallery and I learned a lot. And I feel like you and Carl have been so supportive of me. And so that was really great. So I joke and I'm like, yeah, I was the lowest rung on the ladder. But I mean, I didn't I didn't want any responsibility. And basically, I feel like Carl just let me work there because I needed money. And so he was just helping me out, basically, to do menial tasks and just for me to hang out, basically. Aww. But then in the end, you actually ended up doing an exhibition with us. I did, which you, again... We showed like, your work, just, just, which was my proudest moment. It was like, I don't know, it was super exciting when we did that show. Well, I mean, like that's I, I do think about kind of how Carl's legacy of him having been friends and remained friends with so many really top-tier um, artists and I think a lot of them are women, actually. And I I feel it's because he's someone who really cares about artists. Yeah. So even when I was, as I said, the lowest rung on the ladder, you know, he had a meeting with me and he just said to me, I want to know what your studio hours are. Like, when do you like to work? I know your husband's also an artist. You work together in the studio. And at first I thought, why is he asking me all this? Mm-hmm. 
And he was like, I'm only asking because I don't want this job to interfere with your studio schedule. Oh. Really? Yeah. I never knew that. I think that's really So kind. when was you going to the studio? After working? Yeah. yeah. And how, so, you must have been exhausted. Yeah. I mean, I'm still exhausted. I'm always <laughs> exhausted. No, I, I, so I would work from like 10 to 6 and then I would go to East London and go to my studio maybe until about 10.30 or 12 at night and come home. Ooh. And then at the same time, I think... While I was working at the gallery, I started working at the Barbican as like an usher, basically. So oh, yeah. I saw like a lot of um, like theatrical plays and classical shows, things that I wouldn't have normally had right. the money to go and do. So that was cool. So you know, did that affect your work in some ways? Do you think? Um, I think that maybe the theatricality of some things, yeah. like we can get into that after. But I basically always was really kind of juggling things around, um, trying to do, again, kind of menial jobs because you don't want to exert a lot of brain energy in these types of things. And mm. um, I think even when I was younger in North America, I think the work ethic is really different for the young people. So I used to waitress before I did undergrad school and I was like 18 to 20. Um, and I think those are the best kinds of jobs where you're just kind of like in and out and there's not really a lot of responsibility so you can kind of do your other thing. And I guess that's probably what a lot of actors do. I mean, at the Barbican, I was working with a lot of theatre actors mm. and uh, classical musicians. Mm -hmm. Not very many visual artists, but, you know, everyone was creative, super highly educated. And they're, we're the ones who are like telling people, like, you know, you go down down the stairs to the, to the left at seat. 36 but that's so interesting because in a way you need that job in order to survive of yeah. course but then also not to exert too much brain energy so that's that then right. you can, at night time you, you can up. then put it into your work yeah, and, right. and also probably when you're doing that job you might even be thinking about your work oh, who knows because you have oh, more yeah. space to do that yeah. yeah and my proudest moment with you though wasn't even just doing that group show where you had your work in the yeah. gallery finally yeah. it was actually when you said to me that you were leaving and you, you said you were leaving because you had to focus more on your work in order to become a success or something like that yeah. and you were like even though I need the money yeah. I actually think I need to spend more time in my studio. Otherwise, I don't think I'm ever actually going to become the artist I want to become. Yeah. And it was that conversation we had. I was like, she's going to make it. And I was so proud of you at that point. No, because that is the kind of commitment you need. You yeah. need to somehow believe in yourself, even if you didn't have all the shows, you weren't represented at the time, all that stuff. And then since that time, you have done so many incredible shows Amazing. all over the world. You've had a MoMA PS1 like solo room, which was just incredible. You've had Serpentine you, Gallery Serpentine performance, uh, Palais de Tokyo. Um, you know, Mexico City, um, all kinds of things, like even the solo booth at Freeze last year. And didn't something get bought for a museum or something? Or? Uh, I think Contemporary Art Society bought two two things for the the, the box, Plymouth. The exactly, new which is such an amazing new gallery, though. It's really exciting. So all of these things are happening. And then I've just heard that you're going to be in Venice as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is so cool. Yeah, it is really cool, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. When did you find out about that? Um, so I was approached about that um, very, very early in the year. So mm -hmm. I think that was, um, it was a program that ended up, I think, happening a little bit later. Um, and who's curating it again? Ralph Rukoff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, but it's going to be... So he's actually doing the bit that you are a part of. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It, it was his We live in interesting times, is it that show? So that's like his main show. Yeah. And then this is like the performance program. I think it was probably him and Delphina, Aaron Caesar, who selected the artists. And I had done a performance at the Hayward Gallery last year um, at, at South Bank Centre for the Lee Bull show. So 
I was invited to do that, and I'm assuming that's where he saw my work. Right, right. And I think that they were interested in the performance I did at the Serpentine in 2016 because it worked um, out in an, in and around um, the the grounds of the Serpentine outside. So they were thinking about ways in which they could activate the in between spaces in um, in Venice, basically. Oh, so. so cool. This is one the percussion one, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I loved that work, and I came to the Serpentine. That I day. Know we have really did. funny photos of yeah. us, don't we? You, yeah, because like I but said, you was one of the, there was four of you. There with was the five of us. Oh, it's five of you yeah. leading like a procession through yeah. the crowd and yeah. through the um the pavilion the pavilion yeah. and then you were stopping at various mm-hmm. points and you were performing mm-hmm. and then you were carrying on mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and it was so immersive mm-hmm. and exciting but you were one of them performers I was and you know I feel embarrassed saying this because it's only 2019 and I was invited to do Venice but that was my very first performance like in really yeah. what, what year was Serpentine 2017 2016 16 yeah so it's were you nervous I mean, I was, but like one thing that always um, propels me forward is fear. So I'm like very scared to fail. And so, you know, for Lucia Pietro Usti to give me that opportunity to just like, yeah, like here, have this great platform and do your first performance ever. I mean, that's pretty wild because I was always thinking, I think this bitch is crazy because I could really screw <laughs> up. Like, this is not, you know, I say that because we're friends now, but I just thought this is a really big deal. And I feel like the Serpentine often does that. They work with a lot of um, younger career artists or people that have just graduated university because um, I don't know if they see something or they're just wanting to give a platform or give a first time. Yeah, that's true. I think Hannah Perry did a really great one that we went to. Probably ages ago. Yeah, ages ago. Probably the year before your one even. I think so. And then Eddie Peake maybe years ago. I think all kinds of people have done it. It's it's a really great thing, actually, that Serpentine programme. It's summer nights, isn't it? Uh, so that so I did um, this thing called Saturdays Live, and then but Park Nights is another thing that they do um, every year with like kind of a curated group of um, yeah. of artists. But I mean, I I was given that opportunity through another friend of mine who's also a curator and was working there at the time named Taylor Lamel. Yes, I love yeah. Taylor, and you also know Taylor yes. because of Christie's. I yeah, exactly. Think, right? She was she studied later, and I went in and did yeah. talks at Christie's, and we bonded as well. She was another person that yeah. I met and was like, she is bright, yeah. and super intelligent. Yeah. And she's done so well. Yeah, no, they're. They use they pronouns. Sorry. Oh, they. Sorry. No, no, but that, how would you know? Because before know. it wasn't like yeah. that. Okay. Um, but they are working as the curator in residence at Wising now. So it's really cool because there are all these kind of like interconnections that yeah, totally. we have. But um, yeah, I mean, even thinking about Palais de Tokyo, Carl Friedman came to Paris to see me I in know. Florence. Yeah. I just thought, like, why are you here? Yeah. And he's like, he went to Paris I want on his own. Show that again. Um, so when I did no, the, the, the oh. what the place is the venue oh Palais de Tokyo I love the way you say oh. that <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome um, so it was really nice and so this show yeah. at the Serpentine though did you have when they said to you right you're going to do this did you already have the idea of what the show was or did that make you springboard into creating something so I mean this might be helpful for people to listen to so as Rob was saying I studied uh, painting traditional painting at the Royal College of Art and prior to that I went to um, Emily Carr University in Vancouver and also just did traditional painting and um, going back to me being kind of uh, not a very great student or whatever it's not because I wasn't a good student I just wasn't very talented in the medium that I had been attracted to so I think with painting painting is really difficult I think it requires a certain type of kind of looking and thinking through space in a way that I think is very confining for me so all the ideas that I really wanted to talk about just were not communicated well through painting. And so when you had seen that kind of expanded sculpture thing that I had done, and you'd mentioned that there's some certain silhouettes that maybe reminded you of Anthea. Yes. 
who subsequently is now like a friend of mine. I know. So supportive of me. Yeah. I love she's going to be in Venice in that yes. show. Yeah. I mean, she's like my idol. I told her the other day, I'm like, because she's been so supportive of me. I'm like, I think you're like my drag mother because <laughs> <laughs> you really, she's so supportive. But anyways, back to the painting. So I, I, I just had, one day kind of just started being felt really frustrated like right this is not working for me I don't want to be this like mediocre crappy painter forever I'm like clearly not going to get shows I'm just like this is not going to work for me <laughs> yeah so um I had some conversations with tutors and one tutor said to me like um you know the way you wear clothing or the way you put together um pieces of fabric I feel like you've put much more effort into the what what you're wearing than your work and I so <laughs> But I wasn't offended because he didn't mean it like that. I think, again, he's also an artist. So he's trying to articulate something to me so I would get it. And it just clicked right away to me. Mm. Um, because basically what he was saying is that you're really good with like texture and fabric. You clearly really like fashion. You have really, well, you have an ability to work with color and shape. You're not doing that in your work. So how, what's the attention to detail that you're doing with that thing outside in your normal life that you're not able to bring to the studio? That's so interesting. Yeah, and I had yeah. other... Um, tutors say to me like why don't you try working with fabric or you know they, people I mean half the time when you're doing a visiting lecture you're just saying random stuff because you're trying to help and you don't really know what the hell to say anyway so could it just been random information they were mm. spouting out like take some photos of yourself I'm like I'm not gonna do that or <laughs> you know use a video camera like try to make something anyways but I ended up doing stuff like that because I basically started thinking about painting as something that could be um, dispersed through three-dimensional space mm. and the serpentine was the first um uh, possibility for me to do that so the grounds of the serpentine then became a canvas from which I would be able to work in a composition that kind of moved throughout real space and also you know the first time I started making the textile work I was really thinking about clothing and body painting but in a way that was different than let's say traditional images of paint on the flesh because I'm not I'm not into flesh the way some artists or painters are really interested in that idea of flesh and mm. paint and mm. that kind of a thing I've always more been interested in in fashion and not necessarily like the industry of fashion and, and capitalism which is also interesting but less kind of um talking about what i'm interested in i'm just really interested in kind of the way people move throughout space and present themselves to their friends or the outside world depending on what they wear and so for me to work on a two-dimensional flat surface which started out as these kind of like cape figures like cape shape sorry it was really easy for me to translate what like a flat um, square canvas painting was onto this two-dimensional textile thing that could be hung on the wall and viewed as an object, yeah. but then also draped on the body. So how are you able to kind of layer the idea of painting onto the body and have it move around without it being oil, you know, painted, uh, thrown on the body, excuse yeah. me. And then how is that fabric able to move? Because oftentimes I see artists, they take like canvas, painter, sorry, canvas, cut like a hole in the center and then like paint on it and then like put it on. But for me, I always thought that is uh, that is a feeling I wouldn't want to feel on the skin. Like you can just imagine what like raspy, rough, painted <laughs> rough, yeah. canvas would feel like yeah. on the body, and mm. and that wouldn't move in the same way. So it's normal you would think about it through you know touch of how we you do when you go shopping or thinking about it with fashion. When you watch fashion shows, you see how clothes move on the model. So this is kind of what I wanted to emulate. And then also for me, like the idea of capes was kind of. Um, linked back to the idea of um, the supernatural or supernatural powers or ideas of shape-shifting. 
So when a superhero, for example, or a magician wears a cape, this cape is a symbol of its power, something、mm. that they're able to kind of、um, grow into as soon as that thing goes on top of their body. So you know, Clark Kent is a normal person. He looks the same when he's Superman, but he just wears his cape, and all of a sudden he's able to fly and he has superpowers. And there's something that changes in his body. Yeah. So. Or um, or Russell Tovey playing the Ray. <laughs> oh, yeah, I played the superhero. I, I, I didn't have a cape. I had like oh, you didn't have a cape. You had, had a, a mask helmet. though, a helmet. Yeah. yeah. But all these things that an outfit. I had my outfit.、Okay. He was the first、yeah. gay superhero. Well, there you go. But、Thanks. something that you you wear and you you know as a character, you feel like somehow you you're able to grasp different powers or abilities, and you're able to transform. So that idea of being able to shape shift or have duplicity, and then you know, there's various reasons for that. You might need it in order to move safely throughout space. Society、yeah. in a way. So, the, the, there was an exhibition you did.、Mm-hmm. It was a group show、um, with a number of your friends, I think.、Mm-hmm. And was it in Paddington or somewhere? It was that one that was in that big empty building, the Averard Hotel. Yes, the Averard、mm-hmm. Hotel. So that was the first time that I saw your、um, cape work. Yeah. And I, I mean, not sorry, where I actually felt like, oh my, this is like really working because <laughs> it, you had both sides and you could walk around them,、mm-hmm. and you walked into the space. And yeah, they were they on a became... pole, like a sign, a shop sign. That, that's how you install them, don't you? I think, like, yeah, to... so it goes through the sleeves. Yes, and then, yeah, th- that one. But that one, I think the one you're referring to, that one was shown at MoMA. But you're you were talking about the one Victor Wang actually was a very. That's right. Yeah, it was a Victor Wang curated he's show. He's a good friend of mine. Yes, he's, he's great. A really great curator. Yeah,、so、that was one of I think one of the first things him and I did together. But it was、um, a kind of it looked like. Uh, looked like a long rectangular piece of fabric, and the top had、um, a bamboo pole. Yes, and then it was suspended from that. And on top of this rectangular textile work was、uh, a jacket that hung off. Yes, of this flat rectangular. Yeah. Piece of fabric, and it was great because you got to like walk around it and、yeah. experience it. So it was like and, a two-sided painting. Yeah, and the other things I love in those works that they're almost like collages or something.、Mm-hmm. You cut out different、mm-hmm. elements,、yeah. and you have like yin and yang、mm-hmm. symbols, you have words and words.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then also、um, hip hop is kind of hip hop influenced words, right? Well, n- maybe not necessarily the hip hop influenced words, but the d- aesthetics of the clothing that I was referencing at the time and still now are largely kind of inspired by all the musicians I really loved and were really in. in, in Instrumental to me as a young person. Yeah, so, like who? Like,、um, like Method Man, Wu Tang Clan,、um, Snoop Dogg. So I'm 35. So all the music that I grew up on was kind of like、uh, mid 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. When、really, the best time. When the really big baggy silhouettes were were in, and like when Puff Daddy and Mace came out. And so for me, I don't I have no idea why. I mean, I just like this. Child of、um, immigrants from Vancouver, Canada, was very, very attracted to kind of that、um, hyper-masculine performativity style, really fun and like aggressive. And I think that aggression was something that I was interested in, probably because it was something as a young girl that I didn't feel like I possessed. So as an adult, going back to the idea of kind of superheroes or superpowers. When you're performing, this is the reason why all of the silhouettes are quite big. I'm really interested in kind of like、um, referencing. Those styles of those performers that I thought like when they went on stage, they had all this like、uh, charisma and bravado, and probably like that's something that I need too if I'm going to do a performance. Like I need to feel like in character where I can do that too and have like a kind of a swaggy vibe or something. Somehow you become bigger than yourself or something <laughs> in that performance. Yeah, I think it goes back to the idea of like、um, shape shifting or being a supernatural being, and I think that as a performance musician. 
that's the kind of space that they also occupy. I'm sure that's kind of the state that Sasha Fierce goes into. Exactly. Well, what is your performance persona? Oh. She is Beyonce has Sasha yeah. Fierce. What's yours? I mean, like, I definitely, I, I think in the beginning when I first started doing performance, I was thinking of myself as like, like kind of like a, a rapper. I'm, I'm like yeah. no musicality whatsoever, but <laughs> something that I would, I always really, really admired and wished I could do. So I always thought of myself as young Yumi. So Yumi is my Korean name. But I think now when I go on stage, I'm more interested in kind of channeling ideas of who um, my ancestors were or like people right. in my in my family, like from my mother's side. So like my grandmother, I never met her or maybe like a great, great grandmother. I'm interested in channeling those. This um, is a South Korean yeah, heritage. There. Yeah. So I'm interested in kind of channeling um, women in my family who I didn't know uh, in life or physically, but who I imagine and who kind of populate a lot of the uh, fictional um, fictional stories that uh, I'm working with within my work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And talking about that part of your family, mm -hmm. wait, I've read before that when you were growing up, you almost just tried to assimilate into mm -hmm. Canadian culture mm -hmm. and just ignore like that mm -hmm. part of your mm -hmm. your history and mm -hmm. your your family life or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then as you've grown up, you sort of questioned why you were doing that. And now you're trying to bring it through your work into your life or something. Is that right? Or? Well, I think, I mean, I guess this is a very common story with a lot of children of immigrants. So yeah. I, you know basically grew up in the inner city as a kid and ha grew up with a lot of other immigrant families around me. I didn't have any kind of qualms or quarrels about who I was. And then my mom moved us to the suburbs um, and then I was suddenly around people who had a lot of more economic wealth than I did and also had um, like a nuclear family. You know, they had mom, dad, mm -hmm. dog, fence, whatever, big house. And so I ended up probably feeling really... Um, disenfranchised or kind of crappy and on top of that it's like I was not white so this is a, a really big thing for me as a young person especially during that time just like really really desperately wanting to assimilate within mainstream Canadian white culture right and because of that you know you're trying very desperately to kind of soften any ethnic edging that you might have or you might feel like you're projecting to your peers right you don't want to seem different in any way and so I think because of that I am um, I, I wasn't interested in learning how to speak Korean. So at the time I was going to like Korean uh, Saturday class and like, who wants to do that? Like, right. <laughs> none of your friends are doing that. Yeah. And so even my mom, who is such a big part of my work now and who helped me so much, but as a very young person, I was embarrassed about her accent and didn't like the fact that she would speak with me like, you know, 70% in English and a little bit in Korean because it just, 
didn't didn't want to feel different. I mean, these are very kind of like common tropes among lots of young people who、mm. have had similar backgrounds.、Mm. But as an adult, for me, I think this is not necessarily what my work is about, but it's definitely the driving impetus. So, I I want to really push forward.、Um, Uh, like a pan Asianness, and I use the term pan Asian, I think, because it's what I kind of understand the most. I didn't have a direct relationship with Korean culture as a young person, and my kind of digestion of what it was or is to be Asian is through kind of a pan Asianness, especially within Canada, because there is kind of a focus on、um, multiculturalism in quotes. And so, for me, a lot of things I learned about Asian identity was, you know, through television. Through music and through like a Pan Asianness, and this is where like the yin yang symbol comes into my work. Right. Like I I haven't used that for a while, but <clears throat> when I was using it, I thought at its core, it's gen it's genuinely an image that I looked to as a young person and thought, right, this is the thing that holds authentic Korean value and meaning because it's used within.、Um, Uh, different Korean symbolism, and in my mind, I thought of it within like Taekwondo studios. My uncle did Taekwondo.、Mm. I had some older cousins that the would, yin and yang. Sorry, the yin、yeah. yang is a Korean. It dates back. It, they're originally it's, Korean, it's, and then it. I think it's East Asian. I'm actually、okay. not sure. It's probably Chinese, to be honest.、Uh-huh. Um, that's me exposing my like very <laughs> non <laughs> non rooted Asianness. Is、um, <laughs> the diaspora is messy and then that, that, that word、mm-hmm. is something I'm hearing a、mm-hmm. lot. Diaspora mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um. It's a it. It's about the fact that where where people have come from. So basically, I mean, everyone I think is essentially diasporic. So in my case, for example, my family is originally from Korea, and then immigrated to Canada. That's where I was born and raised, and then I ended up moving to Spain and then London. So I am someone whose family originally comes from Korea, but I'm living a Korean experience that's altered and kind of shifted away from what ideas of essentialist Korean culture. Um, right. Comes from so you know what's my experience as a Korean person who's had these different experiences moving in and around London, for example. And so for me, oftentimes I feel like my work connects with other people that have had similar experiences. It doesn't matter if they're first of all, like, you know,、uh, in quotes East Asian, if their family comes from Korea, it doesn't matter. It's more about kind of the idea of how you're engaging with your identity or maybe aspects of your family's um, culture, um, but in 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 a different.、Um, Country or different、uh, nationalistic sphere, I suppose.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you speak Korean though? I don't. I oh don't, no, not even thirty percent. No. So I, when I was younger, I actually understood quite a lot,、um, and then that really slipped away. And now I speak fluent Spanish. So sometimes, if I try to think about Korean phrases or words, they'll come out in Spanish because my brain has obviously been occupied by that other language now. Wow. But when I spent time with my mom. We speak largely in English, but she'll use certain phrases and words as a, when I was a kid that I recognize and I think, oh, I actually understand a lot more than I think I do. Having said that, I think I also understand her kind of like dialect and her regional accent much、uh-huh. more than I do with like、um, colleagues who live in London and are from Seoul and they speak to me. I don't understand what they're saying.、Uh-huh. I think it's more of that. What does she think of your art? Mm, I think so. For many years, I think she was very worried about me. <laughs> you know, I didn't do the normal kind of university training that most of my cousins have done with the Ivy League schools for engineering or medicine.、Um, but very recently, because I've started to show more, I think she's kind of impressed. Yeah. And because I've like made a little bit of money to like pay for things for myself,、mm-hmm. 
very little, but like it's better than you know. Exactly. Um, doing, better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Doing these, like <laughs> menial jobs where I'm like doing my art, um, like after five o'clock or whatever. I mean, when I had, I had a, a like I was part of a group show at at Moma PS One. It was curated by Jocelyn Miller. I did have my own room, which was nice. Right. Amazing. Yeah. But my cousin, who um is a, a medicine student, and she's like brilliant. She lives in New York. She goes to Columbia University. And so she was really excited. And she brought my mom's older sister and her husband um, to the gallery. And only because my cousin had told my aunt and uncle that this was an important place, who then told my mom that it was important, that she realized it was important. I don't talk about like, oh, this gallery or that. But that was the one time I was like, mom, I'm going to have this show here. It's like kind of a big deal. It's cool. It's in New York. And, <laughs> it's and Loma. She, you might have yeah, heard of it. It's like the like, biggest gallery in the world. She just, yeah. did, she just like that's great you making any money off that i'm like no nothing there's nothing for sale there she's like all right and then when i told her about it i was like yeah i think eunice is gonna take you know whatever um my aunt and uncle there my mom's like oh yeah no i heard it was good i heard it was a nice place i heard it was important because like my cousin that goes to columbia sweet, and went to princeton before told oh. them that it was important yeah, 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 and then they're yeah. like oh yeah this might be something that's right, good right, right. but now she's like stoked so she like helps me um make a lot of the videos so she drives me around and helps produce things like no. I took her to Korea and then she helped me make um like a short video there and my husband um is also someone who I collaborate with all the time and when I went to Canada uh, just last last Christmas to shoot some more stuff my mom basically drove me and my husband everywhere to film oh. so and your husband's in the same kind of context as you yeah so he has his own practice his name is benito and he um has for the past like two and a half years been really um collaborating with me and helping me produce like half the work basically and we always bounce back ideas like he's quite important um with everything now i think we've been together for about 13 years and oh. i met him in vancouver at emily carr and you know we'd always we always had shared studios but we never had kind of a crossover practice link my his work has nothing to do with me, but my practice I'm like heavily dependent on like a lot of stuff that he's his his input, which is I mean probably not very good for him, but it's great for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. So walking into one of your exhibitions, for example, the one at MoMA, um, the first thing that would strike someone who hasn't seen your work before is probably the palette that you mm -hmm. use of mm -hmm. colors, because mm -hmm. you use this kind of technicolor, mm -hmm. very fluoro kind of wild palette, in mm -hmm. my um, mm -hmm. opinion. Mm -hmm. um, how did that all form? And also the use of hair in mm -hmm. the work, because mm -hmm. I've always loved that, mm -hmm. um, the kind of wigs or, mm -hmm. um, you know, bright color mm -hmm. um, hair that you use mm -hmm. in your work. Mm -hmm. So... I think that the color, I've just always been really attracted to bright colors. Even when I was just doing traditional painting, conventional paintings, I was always kind of had a really, I was just really drawn to bright colors. And I think within the textile work, very similarly how I mentioned that I'm referencing certain fashion styles from like the early 2000s or late 90s in like in hip hop culture. It's just kind of clothes that I want to wear or like um, would wear if I was like, <laughs> A, you know a famous performer right so that's usually what i'm attracted to it's this kind of like really garish colors i mean i don't think they're garish but i understand that they are and um when i when i first started using synthetic hair i mean it was conceptually i was thinking about using um using an element of the body that was reflected of my body without using kind of like molds or casts of like body parts which you know lots of artists do so i was thinking about how can i um insert myself within the work and I thought okay I'm going to use kind of like a hair extensions that it looks like my hair basically and they'd be kind of woven throughout these um these kind of uh, 
these garments that were to be worn and performed in. And then I also thought about these capes, again, going back to the ideas of power, um, thinking about it, if I was some type of um, supernatural being, maybe I'd be wearing a cape that had like the hair of all the victims that I had or you know, okay. something. This is like, oh, wow. well, yeah. it was, anyway, it was kind of <laughs> dark, really but hot. I was thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about it like a, kind of, like a talisman, something really powerful that I would wear. Well, shamanism is a big yeah. thing. Yeah. But then I was also thinking about, again, how things move on the body when you wear them and hair moves really nicely. I mean, if you just look at, I mean, you guys, I copy everything. Look, if you look at, there's a Margiela, he made that, um, yeah, or they made coat, that. Wasn't it? That's yeah, right. Yeah. 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 So, you know, just thinking about the way hair moves and how you're able to capture that. And you do definitely feel that as a visitor to your exhibitions, the the sense of them being quite alive in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even without the performance mm-hmm. element, they, mm-hmm. they have this kind of life to them, which I, I really love. Um, yeah, that's really cool. When it comes to costumes, do, does the performance come first or the costume come first? Do you know... Like when it becomes the artwork at the end, do you, do you ever make a costume as artwork and then try and get it into a performance or you know that performance is happening and then you make the work? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think about everything at the same time, but generally speaking, I'll try to conceive of what the performance means, of what the story behind it is and what it's trying to convey to the audience. And then through that, I'll be able to think about characters and what they would be wearing. Mm-hmm. So you touched briefly on Korean shamanism and I'll, I'll make a quick link about why I'm interested in that and going back to my kind of... Um, my distancing of Korean culture when I was a young person. So I stumbled upon Korean shamanism like a few years ago when I watched this um, uh, Korean 1977 cult classic film called, in English, The Island. Mm -hmm. It's basically about an island populated by women who are kind of like diving women, fishing women, who um, basically uh, use, use the sperm of the dead fishermen to just populate repopulate the island but uh, it's a really cool wow. movie it's lovely it's, wow. <laughs> but there is where a, is this again <laughs> um i think it's based from jeju island off of uh the southern tip of south korea but anyways there is a, a a scene in the movie where there's a, a korean shamanic ritual and i'd never seen anything like this this kind of middle-aged korean woman wearing a very um bright costume um being really sexually vulgar and a bit grotesque and clearly kind of like um viewed within the lens of like um, supernatural evilness in the movie. And I thought, what the hell? This is so interesting. Um, and so I did some research and I subsequently found out that Korean shamanism is um, an indigenous cultural religion of Korea that predates Confucianism and Buddhism. It's about 5,000 years old. And it's something that's been, um, for all of its existence within Korea, suppressed and um, uh, uh, suppressed and uh, tried to... Uh, and people have tried to eradicate it from Korean culture because it's been seen as primitive or backwards. Um, because the main culture is Christianity now? Yeah, but even it was like the seen as the antithesis to Confucianism, which is built on patriarchal values and uh, very right. strong, rigid gender roles uh, placed within society. And so Korean shamanism is largely um, uh, led by women, uh, these women shamans, basically. And within these rituals, I thought of them as very performative in how... Uh, they they change they change costumes depending on what um, what spirit they're invoking. Huh. Yeah. So I mean, everything is regional. So each region of Korea that has its own particular type of shamanism. So each shaman doesn't always have these. But they're the, always the women. Thing. They're usually women. And that's a South Korea thing because I would, in my head, shamanism is a shaman. I'd always mm-hmm. imagine being a man. Yeah. So in in I think so in all of Korea because obviously it wasn't divided forever, but largely heralded by women. And actually, um, from my own research and 
not my own research, but from reading other people's research, men that participate in shamanism, um, it seems to be um, maybe an outlet for gay men or trans men. Really? Or maybe they're able to the kind of certain effeminate behavior is ex- seen as acceptable within those realms wow, because cool. gender roles are very rigid in South Korea. Right. But anyway, so it's just my, again, I'm very, very passionate about um, Canadian indigenous rights mm. and um, cultural traditions being kind of upheld and learned about by non-indigenous Canadian people and respected and something Definitely. that should be heralded at the forefront. So for me to discover that there was something in Korea that was indigenous to the country that was seen as kind of evil or backwards or something that should be eradicated or suppressed or to be gotten rid of, that for me is a symbol of kind of resistance because it had resisted um, the influence of Confucianism, which was seen as enlightened and, you know, scholarly. Um, and then Buddhism as well, and then later Taoism, and then later Neo-Confucianism, later Christianity, and in the 80s, you know, heavy political suppression by the government then that tried to stamp it out. There was actually a movement to stamp out superstition, that's what they called it. To think that it's been able to survive for that long is something that for me is um, really admirable. And, you know, Mm. outside of the idea of religion or spirituality, just to think that there is something within... A Korean traditional culture that is seen as unsavory and people are not interested in learning about it when it's part so much part of the history and woven into kind of the everyday fabric of the culture. It just makes me sad. Mm-hmm. So it's something that I wanted to kind of focus on and also thinking about these kind of strong archetypal women as references for me, you know, and oftentimes for me, the shame in, in Korean culture is in between life and dead and the dead, sorry, were they able to communicate both sides so for me like that korean shaman also then becomes like an avatar or a prism for me in my work of thinking of myself not me but a character that i might kind of become where they're like in the middle space of culture and hybridity so you know i'm able to stand in that position and kind of see or kind of activate that middle space of where i feel like my experiences within my own identity lives that doesn't make really a lot of sense what i'm trying to say is that you know someone coming from canada and korea Mm -hmm. if you think of these concentric circles and how they overlap that middle space where all the circles overlap in the diagram that's right so this is basically kind of a third space a middle space where kind of new identity narratives are able to emerge wow and this is the kind of space that i feel like my work and where i'm trying to occupy this space so rather than thinking about myself as like an amalgamation of many different things what is your identity yeah thinking about it as like a a, a nuanced new identity narrative that I'm just figuring out right now. I don't really have the answers to. Yeah. And that's a lot of where my work is kind of like, that. that's the world in which my work is trying to situate itself in. And this is why I think about things within um, perspectives of the supernatural, because I guess within those worlds, there's limitless possibilities, right? This is why a lot of feminist thinkers are really interested in ideas of science fiction or kind of speculative fiction, because right, you're right. able to tell the truth through fiction, right? right. You're able to kind of... Um, but this, but the performance then, are you invoking these in a shamanistic style, these spirits? Each performance is a different spirit you're invoking to tell certain sides of the stories which you're still discovering about yourself? No, not necessarily. I oh. think for me... <laughs> no, but um, I think for me, I'm more interested in the idea of using that as a reference point to which um, I can talk about... I can talk about new identity narratives within new um, supernatural worlds, I guess, of where... Um, my identity might rest. And I guess everything is kind of speculative or held within the world of fantastical fiction because at this point within like reality, reality, I don't see it for myself. So one needs to kind of be able to imagine that. And so when I reference shamanism, it's more thinking about the kind of 
um, an apex of power of where my character can can sit and circumnavigate that space in the center. I think that's a really convoluted way for me to explain that. No, to you, but <laughs> I like it. No, it's good. Yeah, because I'm I'm what I'm doing right now is I'm I'm not scripted. I'm like thinking through this stuff, yeah, and also yeah. like I think it's really important to say that with my work. I'm always thinking through these ideas. It's not like I have it set out and I can give you like an X, Y, B, A, B, C, Well, no, it's a work in progress. You're constantly musing yeah, what it is. Yeah, but I think is. also like because identity is such a slippery thing, I think it would be really arrogant and really... Yeah, to say it's fixed. Yeah, or even just like not even arrogant, but like really stupid and really short-sighted to think yeah. like you just had it figured out. But I must say that I think even from the first time I ever saw any of your work, mm. you have your own universe that you've created mm -hmm. and you've got your own language that you're, you've created in a way of communicating. I think you have in your work, I mean. And I don't mean like a language you speak, but I mean no, a no, visual that, language. Yeah. And I feel like each, you know, six months, a year that passes that I've known you, it's got stronger and stronger and stronger and clearer and clearer in a way. And that's the beauty of it. And I, and I think you'll continue this the whole way through your life mm. in a way of like, yes. you know, continuing it. And it's it's always going to be a quest Evolving, for you to yeah. understand yourself and to... Yeah, I think like you just hit the nail on the head when you... I mean, I often think about the work within the context of language. So I feel like I am stitching together my own nuanced vocabulary to describe this kind of um, identity space that I feel like I fit into. And when I say like I fit into it, I don't only necessarily mean that it's for me. I guess this goes back to my idea of my the work speaking to a larger audience that also finds themselves within um, diasporic narratives, mm. regardless of where their family originally comes from. Mm. And so for me, even the idea of collage and assemblage, we didn't get to this, is just the idea of stitching together disparate references to make one thing. Mm. So I think it's a really good way for me to work practically because I like using kind of... Um, uh, I, I like using um, pre-existing material to make my work, but also thinking about it as a metaphor of, you know, yeah, putting together different things to make one, which I essentially feel um, reflects how I grew up and how I think everyone grew up, really. Mm. Yeah. And you patch and sew your own clothes. You, do I you have do. a team or...? I do. So basically I work, my team is me and my husband, <laughs> but for the next when does he have things, time to make his own work he doesn't <laughs> he, he doesn't he, 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 does, doesn't. he, he hasn't for the past two and a half years oh, really? but we've just got a studio in Spain which is much bigger which he's going to be able to oh, get away from me basically because I really like his paintings and we yeah. showed him I think didn't we yeah, in the gallery we did. as well yeah. and also you had one of his works or two of his works in your show at Union it Pacific did. I did yeah the last solo show mm -hmm. so you, you do include him in your yes. exhibitions as well where are you based now um, in London, so my studio's in Bromley by Bow. Oh, which I went to. I yeah. went to her studio and it was so exciting. Right. Can I come because to the studio, the, please? The, oh, yeah. the, the passion, though. <laughs> you, 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 you walk into her studio and you feel this passion because it's just surrounding you everywhere there is something like being made and I don't know what you were working on at the time maybe it was the Union Pacific solo show but there was so much work being created and it was just you and you, you the hours you were yeah. working were unbelievable yeah. I mean I sleep and in I the loved studio do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah because there's just no time I think and great so, music playing yeah I think a friend of mine said to me like you really need to figure out your production because you can't be making this super detailed work that needs to be handmade just by you and Benito and then kind of work on the scale in which you're doing, yeah. which uh, it's not great. Like I, 
Yeah, I think it will soon get a bit better once we have the studio in Spain because it's much larger and it's just kind of more equipped. So will you move to Spain? I won't, but it's so easy to get there. It's Got only it. like two hours, right. like four hours door to door. And so this is the city where um, Benito's family is from. So oh. it's more... And you it's you guys have been talking about getting a studio like that for a long time somewhere. You weren't sure where it was going to be, but that, I think yeah. that's great that you're going oh, to where his family are. Yeah, but that's a nice thing, I think. It is to... because um, you're able to work in a space that isn't London and doesn't occupy your time and your mental space the way it does here. I mean, I love it here so much. I owe everything to this city, but it's really important to get time away where you're able to work. And it's also very expensive here. So when you come to my studio, I think my studio is like pretty okay for the... for where I fit within the hierarchy of artists. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, it's great. Because this, I have a lot of friends that don't have studios like mine. Having said that, I mean, there's obviously people that have, you know, huge studios. Yeah, but sure. I mean, within London, my studio's all right, but it's still too small. Mm. When will you be making the work for Venice? Venice? I'm making it now. Yeah. So, I'm so just, you already know what you're doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it's going to be quite new. Like, it's, it is based on the performance from Serpentine in the sense that we will be. Um, completely like analog so to speak so i'm not going to depend on any um electronic stuff no av nothing like that because i'm oh, yeah, too because worried your, about your somerset house on. performance you did actually had av it had like videos yeah. on the walls because yeah. it was in it was interior space yeah and that was that was really great Yeah, i think usually i tend to like working with a lot of different like multimedia right yeah um because it's a way for me to kind of like include all elements of my work to kind of describe a very large um painterly theatrical show mm-hmm. yeah um but with venice i was very wary of it being something that we're transplanting from here to there mm-hmm. and i don't want any problems i want it to be completely self-reliant mm-hmm. so because of that it's going to be all acoustics i'm working with a traditional korean drummer named ji hae kim and she specializes in shamanic rhythms and then i'm also working with four dancers so mary feliciano um, yumi noseki uh, Jaya Yukorti and then Iris Chan, who are really, really amazing. I'm really excited to be collaborating with them, and it's going to be really special. And I'm also working with the same um, performance team for my Art Night commission in London. I was just about to say, so for anyone who's in London and isn't going to go to Venice, um, you can actually see Zadie in Art Night, which is a great series of um, events throughout London. Where is your one going to be? It's going to be in the Walthamstow Library. So Art Night this year is in Walthamstow. There's so much happening in Walthamstow at the yeah, moment. Yeah, I think because it's Loads to be like things. the borough of culture that's right yeah because oh, wow. damon Orban just did a big gig last week in walthamstow and actually my uh, cousin's husband um gowan he did this big um visual kind of art performance with the local choirs and um singers right when's area. that june 22nd so Perfect. my performance will be from 7 p.m till 3 a.m so it's awesome. a durational right. performance. Yeah. So exciting. So it's so we- nice because it'd be quite different than Venice. Sorry, I just totally cut you off. It's no, just no. um so it's it's much more complicated in the sense that it's like a complete kind of theatrical setting with video projection, sound and sculptures. Great. Amazing. So we ask all of our guests, um, if you could do an art heist, you have heard the podcast, you say no, yes, you know this was coming. <laughs> and you like the podcast. Yes. I do, I do. <laughs> Yay. Um, if you could do an art heist or what is your touchstone artwork, what would that be? So, because I had time to think about it, because I would have stressed out had I not, um, I would have chosen uh, Hieronymus Bosch's uh, um, The World of Earthly Delights. That's not the title. 
You know the one I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. That's also in the Prado. Yes. And the Prado seems to be a regular occurrence in this topic because people love that museum. Well, it's the best museum. Hieronymus Bosch, I mean, you can't go wrong. I used to live 10 minutes away from that museum. Wow. So So it's a a really, really amazing work um, in life and even in photos because there's just so much stuff going on. You can look at it forever and you think this was made in like, I think the 15th century, 1400s, right? Just amazing. Um, what is it? It's 1470. Yeah, 15th, yeah, 15th century. And just oh, yeah, think like, so my husband is a big art history buff and he was telling me like, can you imagine like this was made for like the king where it was just like mm-hmm. hidden, cloistered mm-hmm. away in his room, like this, this freaky shit. And you just open it <laughs> and you're like, what the hell is this? Like, And if you look in it, you see things like jet skis and like a motorboat. Like how did that, you know, just weird stuff. Yeah, where you're like, yeah. where this person must have been some like crazy. Nostradamus like, type territory, um, yeah. And like drugs or something, right? Because yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Nostradamus on right. drugs. Yeah. But even when you close it, I think most people don't see it. When it closes, it, there's also a really beautiful grayscale painting on the outside right. of yeah. the, the wooden doors. Yeah, yeah. So wow. that also his, yeah. his his palette, Garden of Earthly Delights. Sorry, Garden, that's what it Garden is. Like such a mainstream work, and I forgot the name. No, but it's a great work. Mm-hmm. And also his his color palette is interestingly yeah. quite parallel to yours yeah. in a weird way because yeah. it's so multicolored. Yeah, and, crazy. and the, the kind of crazy, weird, freaky, yeah, supernatural yeah. world. Yeah. But also, like, those colours still hold up till today. We totally. Just can you imagine? Mm. So our other question we ask every guest is, what is your favourite mm. colour? That's, like, the perfect time to ask yeah, you. Yeah. My favourite colour right now is, um, like, a powdery pastel purple. Ooh. So it used to be a powdery pastel pink that um, this musician Cameron, this rapper from Harlem, who I really, really love, and a reference his kind of clothing style a lot in my work that used cool. to be my favorite color but then he also was wearing purple at the same time in the early 2000s so that's my favorite color it's kind of like lavender mm. um uh, pastel purple good one wow for some reason i've got like um you know we were talking about uh hair earlier yeah and like multicolored um mm-hmm. synthetic hair i was just starting to think about anime characters and cartoon mm-hmm. characters mm-hmm. and then superheroes but also um the idea of like pop stars or rappers if you think of like Nicki minaj mm-hmm. or even like lily allen mm-hmm. who by the way, if anyone's listening to this, you should listen to Lily's interview on How to Fail mm, with Elizabeth Day because I loved that interview so much. But I posted a picture of her on my Instagram the other day of Lily and she has, you know, like bright hair. And I love that idea of somehow dyeing your hair and then that turns you into a superhuman pop star or something. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, well, I think it does. Yeah. I think whenever you layer anything onto your body or adorn yourself in a way that's kind of outside of the norm or makes you move or behave in a different way, it's basically altering kind of who you want to you want to be for that day yeah totally well well are you that, are you on instagram i am on Insta- oh, yeah. instagram <laughs> um it's zadie cha so z-a-d-i-e-x-a and also at instagram, zadie's I instagram know. i think is like a kind of visual diary that um exists in a kind of parallel universe uh, you know alongside your work yeah you used I, to use it a lot more i don't use it that much anymore. i love it though you have, web- and, you have a website though because i watch a lot I of do, your performances yeah. on there what, mm-hmm. what's the website so it's just uh www.zadiecha.com so z-a-d-i-e-x-a Great. Cool. Well, Zadie Cha, mm-hmm. thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, it's been Zadie. such this a privilege awesome. to hear you speak. I love you. I yeah. love you. Thanks. And um, yeah. looking forward to. You were just continuing. looking at Rob then. I know, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> because he was talking. I love you. I love you too. Thank you. Actually, wait, 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 wait. You know, because like, I, I knew you were best friends with Rob when I worked at the gallery. And before I knew that you were an actor, I saw you on Sherlock Holmes uh-huh. ages ago. And I mentioned that to Rob. And it was called The Hound. I remember the Hound, see? Yeah. So, yeah. 
you know, and you maybe love Rocky I'll, as well, like, don't you? you don't... been and crushing on you too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, yeah. I think we need to send our love oh to Rocky gosh, in the yeah. in yeah. the yeah. I'm really, really happy that he was here. I actually yeah. told my husband, I was like, I really hope the dog is going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> He's always here. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And I'm looking much. forward to like continuing our yeah. friendship and um, yes. the journey as we grow older. I'm really yeah. excited. Well, I'm looking forward to like having a, a friendship and yeah. carrying yeah. on from here. Exactly. Good times. Yeah. <laughs> everyone listening, please visit our Instagram to see images of all the artworks we've spoken about. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, Podcast, do leave us a review. You can leave them at iTunes um, on Apple sorry Apple Podcasts. Um, oh, no, I don't know. I think it's just Apple Podcasts. Oh. You can leave reviews, but it, it's really great to hear your feedback. Thank you so much. Lots of love, and we'll be back soon. Cheers, bye. 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 You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamant and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in this episode. Recorded at Spiritland London by Anthony Shaw and edited by Gareth Isles. Subscribe to Talk Art on iTunes and Spotify. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.